If you have a Bible, copy of the Bible with you, please turn to our Old Testament reading, Exodus chapter 32. Exodus, well, chapter 33 and 34. Let's just remember where we are in the story. The book of Exodus begins with the people of Israel living as slaves in Egypt. And they've been there, been living in that very difficult set of circumstances for several centuries. Over the course of the first 15 chapters of Exodus, God delivers Israel from slavery, from Egypt, from the threats of this genocidal king that is killing the baby boys of of Israel. And he brings them out of the land of Egypt and they travel to a mountain, um, Mount Sinai. And when they get there, they enter into a covenant with God. We saw this several weeks ago. It was like a wedding. They pledge themselves to love and be loyal to, to Yahweh, to this one particular God out of all the gods. And Yahweh pledged to be loyal to them. And they entered into this relationship. And at the climax of it, just like at the climax of, of wedding ceremonies we do, they had a great feast. They, a, they, they ate and they drank. And then... During the honeymoon period, Moses is on top of the mountain um, with God. The mountain's covered in cloud and smoke and thunder and lightning. And God is giving Moses um, a gift, a wedding gift, the plans for the tabernacle. This is very much like the logic of our weddings today. God basically is saying, I'm going to build a house so that we can dwell together. And while that's happening... Israel's doing what? I mean, Israel's doing this remarkably disastrous thing. Israel is betraying God and worshiping another God. And that is the scorching events of chapter 32. Now, chapter 32 ends with a cliffhanger. How is God going to respond? How is God going to respond to his bride betraying him on the honeymoon? What's he going to do? At one point, God said, let me alone, Moses, so that in my anger, I can burn against them and destroy them. And we get to the end of Exodus chapter 32, and, and, and it's this big question mark, what happens to the relationship after the affair? What kind of God is this? Now, it's tricky for us to feel that tension because we, we stand on the other side of the cross in the resurrection, and we have this deep sense of how faithful and long-suffering God is. But this is only the second book of the Bible. In my Bible, it's page 87 out of over 1,200 pages. They did not know the God. They did not know God like we know God. It was a huge question mark. What happens now? It would be just like if you got married and on the honeymoon, you had an affair, you would enter into a period where there's a giant question mark Will this marriage last? What's going to happen? I've not lived with this person long enough, gone through enough things in life with this person to know how this is going to turn out. And that's where we are at the end of chapter 32. Israel is being told by God, listen, in chapter 33, the beginning of 33. So we get to the end of 32, big question mark. What happens now? Beginning of 33, notice what it says. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here. You and the people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, 
to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you're a stiff-necked people. So basically, God says, look, everything I promised to give you, I'm going to give it to you, except we're not going to live together anymore. I cannot live with you because you're intolerable, because I'm a holy God. And when you behave this way, if I am in your midst, I will consume you. So I'm going to like keep supporting you. I'll send an angel with you, drive out all those bad guys in the promised land, and let you set up house and live there, all of that. But we can't be together. Now, that makes sense, doesn't it? Sean, you're a counselor. You can understand that, right? This, This is a logical kind of way to respond to total betrayal. Now, what does Israel do with that? Notice how Israel responds, verse 4. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. Now, what I want to show you is that two incredible things happen in Exodus 33 and 34. The first is that Israel repents. And Israel repents in chapter 33 through three specific actions. The first action of Israel's repentance is grief. Israel mourned. Now, what's interesting is that back in 32, at Israel's original sin, they didn't care what God went with them. They just wanted a God to go with them to drive out the bad guys and protect them. They were alone in the wilderness. They thought God was missing. They thought God couldn't be relied upon, so they picked another God. But here, Israel suddenly says, oh, wait a minute. If you actually give us what we asked for, just any God to go with us, if you don't go with us and we are protected, you send your angel, you drive out these bad guys, you protect us, you establish us, that's no longer good enough. That's not really what we really want. See, suddenly Israel says, don't give us what we asked for. We don't want that. In fact, God, if you are not with us, it's a disaster. And so what we see in Israel's grief, notice what they're grieving. They are grieving the absence of God. In their deep in their heart, they are mourning the fact that God would not be with them. So suddenly for Israel, no longer, it's no longer good enough to get the gifts of God. They want God. They want God himself. That is the first action of repentance. If last week when we were looking at Israel's idolatry, you came to realize that you've got idols in your life. If over the course of Advent, as we're preparing to receive Jesus more deeply into our hearts, if you have begun to see sin in your life, the first action of repentance is grief. It's mourning. It's mourning the real fact that when you and I sin, it drives a wedge between us and God. One of the great gifts of walking in righteousness is a deep knowledge of the nearness of God. And it's just like this in all of our relationships. If if Levi and I are really good friends, but I am harming him, sinning against him, betraying him, 
Surely our relationship changes. Surely a a distance, a gap grows between us. That same thing happens between me and God when I'm sinning, when when there's sin in my life. It drives this gap between God. And here we see the first action of repentance is to own up to that and to and to embrace that and to feel that until your heart breaks over that and to grieve over that. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. See, sometimes what we do when we sin and these, this kind of alienation begins to settle in, this gap between us and God. We might begin to feel really bad about it, but if we don't turn that into a a repenting kind of grief, that grief will just sit and decay in us. But a godly grief moves toward repentance. That's what we see Israel doing here. Suddenly, Israel got what she asked for. She got someone to go with her to protect her, but it wasn't God. They realized that what they wanted wasn't good for them, and they broke over that, and they said, it's not worth it. We want you, God. Now, the second action of Israel's repentance comes at the end of verse 4. And no one put on his ornaments. Well, that's kind of a weird statement. So the next part explains it. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you're stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. It's an odd little thing. What's the deal with these ornaments? Well, the last time we saw them was when? at the golden calf, when they use these very things to make the, to make the idol. So what Israel's doing is they're taking this, this exact place of disobedience and they're, they're obeying in that place. That's the second action of repentance. If the first action of repentance is grief, the second is obedience. So they're obeying with the very objects that they disobeyed with. Remember, they took off their earrings and they made this golden calf out of them. At its heart, sin is disobedience. At its heart, sin is when you and I say, God, you've got these laws, you've got these rules. I don't like them. I like this instead. I think that's dumb. I think this is better. I think that's going to hold me back. I think this is going to make a way forward. At its heart, sin is disobedience, and we don't like this because the one single physical idol America has is a statue of the god Libertas, and it's in the harbor, and it's actually a statue of an actual god. The god is named Libertas, and here in America, in our guts, we feel like obedience is a thing for children, but even that we're beginning to struggle with, and that to have to obey is somehow downgrading our authority, our power, our position. And God has these rules and these laws, and we don't like rules. We don't like laws. We feel kind of in our guts that law is the opposite of grace, but it's not. Law is not the opposite of grace. The law in America to drive on a particular side of the road is a great gift of grace 
to all the people who want to drive on any side they pick, right? It protects us. In fact, our reading in the gospel that Ashley read to us, John, the gospel of John, it says this right at the beginning of John's gospel. It says, we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and through truth through Jesus Christ. Look, when it says in verse 16, we have all received grace upon grace, the next verse tells us which each part of grace is. The first gift of grace was the law given through Moses. But then we got even more grace. It's not the law wasn't grace and then Jesus was grace. It's that both law and Jesus were gifts of grace. Sin is disobedience. It's believing that God's law is not grace, but it's bondage. And that my total freedom is what I want. Israel got to pick what they wanted, and they discovered they didn't want it anymore. And so the second act of of repentance is obedience. Look, if God is uncovering idolatry in your life, if God is showing you sin in your life, grieve and find the practical step of obedience that gets you back into the ways of God. The third act of obedience, um, of repentance, comes up in verses 7 through 11 with this weird tent of meeting business. So Moses is going and meeting with God, and notice what it says in verse 9. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his own tent. Worship is a third action of repentance. So just imagine your week. Let's say that there's somebody in this room um, who sinned this week. I don't know. Let's just pick Wilson, for example. <laughs> and, uh, or maybe you sinned this week. How does this work? Well, in our service at the beginning, we hear the law read and then we confess. What if in that silent space, before we sang, God have mercy, what if you owned your grief? And you felt it. What if you arrived here this morning brokenhearted, so deeply sad that you didn't walk into this room with the nearness of God because you've betrayed him this week? And what if you embrace that grief? And what if you commit that you're going to get back on track and you're going to stop doing X, Y, Z, or you're going to start doing X, Y, Z? And what if you put your whole heart into this worship service? Even though you are grieving the distance of God, what if you reminded yourself that God is God? And these songs we're singing are true, and you need to sing them, and you need to worship them, because this is at the heart of what it means for us to be creatures and to relate to the Creator. Worship is an action of repentance. One of the worst things you can ever do when you fall into sin and idolatry is stop going to worship. Because that's fundamental to what it means to be a creature of God. It's to stand before God and to say things that are true about him and to praise him and to rejoice in him. 
Remember, the Ten Commandments start with the command to worship God and God only and don't worship any other gods. And here we see that Israel's sin back in chapter 32 was that they worshiped another God. So now when they are standing in awe of God and they are worshiping him, this is an act of repentance, coming to God's house, coming into worship and turning your heart's affections and your mind's attention toward God. This is a way of repenting. And so there we are, the three actions of repentance. How about it? In the season of Advent, as you're preparing to receive Christ more deeply into your life, can you learn from Israel to grieve, to obey, and to worship? This is a path back to God. Now, after we get to the end of that, and we notice that in chapter 32, big question mark, what's going to happen with the relationship? And God says, okay, here's the relationship. I'm still going to give you all the gifts. Whoa. I'm still going to give you all these great gifts, but, but I can't be with you. And Israel just stops and says, well, that, that's overwhelming. And then Israel repents. Now what happens? Well, God says, okay, I'll go with you. Look at the end. Look at the end of verse, uh, chapter 33, uh, verse 15. And Moses said to God, if your presence will not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I've found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, and every other people on the face of the earth? In verse 17, and the Lord said, Okay, I'll go with you. Now, we expect that because we've been told about grace for centuries. But he did not know. He didn't know, what is this God going to be like? And God said, this very thing you've spoken, I will do. For you've found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And then Moses' response is, oh, my goodness. I want to know you even more. Show me your glory. That's what, it, when he says, God, show me your glory, he's saying, like Keith said this a couple of weeks ago, the closer you get to God, the more beautiful he becomes. The closer you get to God, the more you want to get closer to God. Unlike some other things we've experienced in life that you move toward them and they get ugly. Here is Moses saying, um, Lord, I, you are so amazing. So he's absolutely convinced that Israel deserved for the terms that God had set. Go on, but I won't go with you. And when God says, okay, I'll go with you, Moses wants to know, he wants to know this God. Please show me your glory. And as you keep reading, what we learn is that he wants to see the face of God. Now, what is that about? In Moses' culture, it's the face that reveals a person. I think this is why we don't, this is a fundamental reason masks are a burden. It's because they're diminishing our ability to know each other and to see each other. The human face is this amazingly expressive thing. You have 
a much better chance to get to know someone when you can look in their face. So for Moses to see God's face is for him to see who God really is, to penetrate to the mystery of this God that is full of power and wrath, but suddenly has compassion and mercy. It's like this mystery. I want to know you, God. I want to know you more. Well, God tells Moses in chapter 33, verse 20, you can't see my face for man shall not see me and live. It's, it must be something like the sun. Right? It's sort of like that God's face is so dazzling, so amazingly radiating his divine being that to see him would be too overwhelming, at least in this life. So God says to Moses, here's what I'll do. I will let you get a glimpse of my face, a glimpse. I, you can stand in this part of the rock and I'll cover you up and I'll pass by and um, shield you from fully staring into the sun and um, just as my glory is disappearing, just as my face, the, the truest sight into me, just as it's fading away, I'll let you get a glimpse. And then we get to chapter 34. Moses gets in position. And verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Okay, let me just stop for a second. The Bible is the story of God. The Bible is a story. It tells the story of who God is and what he's like. It tells the story of this world, where it came from, what's wrong with it, and how it's going to get healed. And there are certain moments in the story that are foundational. They're foundational in the sense that God clearly tells us something, that he gets on the board, and the whole rest of Scripture refers back to that. Key moments in the Bible. This is one of them. This is the longest description of the character of God in the whole Bible. It's the fullest description of God's character anywhere in the Bible. Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 7. It's not only the longest, it's the first time that we're told about these particular things of God. In addition, it gets picked up and quoted in every major book of the Bible after this. When David has fallen into sin with Bathsheba and he's begging God for forgiveness, he quotes this. You are a God that is slow to anger, merciful and gracious, abounding in love. He quotes this to God. He learned that God could forgive from this passage. When the prophets are dealing with Israel because Israel has rebelled and they're calling Israel back, they, they quote this passage to Israel. Israel, this is what God is like. Come back to this God. Who wouldn't want this God? When, when God tells Jonah to go and preach to Israel's enemies, the Ninevites, Jonah refuses to because he quotes this passage, because you'll forgive them, and I hate them, and I don't want you to forgive them, and I'm not going to be a part of that craziness. Joel, when Joel is calling Israel to, to walk in the ways of God, Joel says about the world, God will treat the world like this, compassionate, merciful, gracious. When John comes along and he writes the gospel of Jesus and he says, Jesus is full of grace and truth. I don't have time to go into it now, but it's a Greek translation of Hebrew words. And it is John's summary of this passage. And he picks up all these words. And after chapter one, he no longer uses the word grace, but he uses the word love as the 
as the interpretation of what all these words mean. This is a foundational passage in all the Bible. This is one of the passages you need to memorize because it's what David memorized. It's what John memorized. It's what the whole rest of the Bible plays off of when it answers the question, who is God? And what do we see about God in this passage? Well, look, there are two parts of it. The first part are these three phrases about the character of God. He's merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger, the second phrase. And the third, he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is who God is in his character, just right down at the core of his being. He is grace. He is love. He is mercy. He's slow to anger. He's filled with this kind of faithfulness. See, Moses saw God do that with Israel, stay faithful to Israel, keep the covenant with Israel. And he said, I I don't understand this kind of God, but man, I want to know you. And then God says, okay, here's the deepest insight into who I am. I, in the depths of my being, am merciful and gracious and slow to anger, and I'm abounding in a loyal kind of love and a faithfulness. And then the second part, We get three verbal phrases. So there were these three phrases in the first part about his character. Then there are these three phrases in the second part about his actions. Keeping, forgiving, and visiting. Keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Look, there's three words piling on. Anything wrong you can do, any category of wrong you got going on, I can forgive it. And finally, visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. See, part of what Moses was going through was he was confused. How can this God who has love also have wrath? How do these things fit together? And here in God's fullest disclosure, he shows how they relate to each other. There's this tension. For a lot of us, on the one hand, God's love is so expansive, so strong, and so consistent that there must not be any room in that for anger. But in this very description, while there's a strong emphasis on forgiveness, God forgives right in the middle of it, by no means clears the guilty. What do we make of all of this? We make of it that God is overwhelmingly forgiving, but he retains the right to punish. But notice, even in his forgiveness versus his punishment, notice how forgiveness outweighs punishment. Notice the contrast. It begins with, for the thousandth generation, his love, his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness. But then at the end of it, when he's talking about punishment, it's the third and fourth generation. So whatever it means for God to hold both of these in tension, for God to visit the iniquity It seems to be something about um, how I I think what's going on there to the third and fourth generation is that something we know from sociology, the sins of a parent kind of get picked up and repeated. For the third and fourth generation, that would be children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. I think what's going on there is those who saw it are impacted by it, but it, but that's not nearly as steadfast, the effects of sin, are not nearly as steadfast and as long and as um, impactful as, a, as, as the faithfulness of God to people, which goes to a thousand generations. Now look, throughout this remarkable story of God's, inter, of, of God's 
graciousness and faithfulness. What happens between chapter 32 and chapter 34 is two things. Israel repents and Moses intercedes. And the, and the combination of those two things with the character of God is that Israel's not wiped out. Moses' intercession, Israel's repentance, when those things meet the character of God, her sins are forgiven. And he's got steadfast love. God commits to not only sending them to the promised land, but to going with them. And he restores the covenant. So look at this. When we look at the start of Israel's relationship with God, we see that Israel is capable of shocking unfaithfulness. And God shows astonishing grace and forgiveness and commitment. Israel's failure is horrendous. It's as bad as it can get. And God's grace is more than sufficient to take them beyond it. But integral to that is the intercession of Moses and the repentance of Israel. So what about you? God abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is full of mercy and compassion, and he never behaves other than faithfulness and grace with mercy and patience and steadfast love. And yet the goodness of God does not mean he will tolerate evil forever. Those who will not repent of their evil will perish with it. Because at the end of the day, for God to be truly God, and fully good to his whole creation, he has to remove from it whatever spoils and destroys its goodness. Ideally, it's removed through repentance. But if necessary, it will be removed by judgment. So if you are in sin and idolatry, follow Israel to the heart of God. Repent. Ask someone to pray for you. If you are interacting with somebody who is stuck in their sin, don't underestimate your intercession. Let's pray.